Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Hope that you're having a good week, and uh, we appreciate your prayers for Camden and I on our trip to Kansas City. It's cold up there, by the way, but a lot warmer here. We landed here, and we were glad to be back in Texas, but anyway, it was a wonderful time. Thank you for praying for us and for your support, and uh, anyway, it was a, a good trip for us, so we appreciate that. Good to see all of you. Hope you're having a good week, and we didn't meet last week because of spring break, so we're Back now looking at Zechariah, we are to chapter 6, starting in verse 9 tonight, 6, 9 through chapter 7, verse 7 is what we'll be looking at, and uh, interesting, uh, interesting passage I think you'll find hopefully enjoyable tonight. Let's pray together, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet as your church body, to study your word together. Your word is life, it is truth, it's power to us, uh, and God, whenever we open the pages of the Bible, it's you speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. So, Father, tonight I pray that you would speak clearly to us things you want us to know, things you want to inform us about. But, God, not just inform us, but even also to change our actions and to be the people you want us to be. Thank you for your word again uh, that you've given it to us as a great gift. And it's a privilege to teach it and a privilege to study it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, just because we didn't meet last Wednesday, you thought you were getting out of the test tonight, didn't you? I know you. I thought that. Well, I have seven questions for you that have been on previous uh, quizzes throughout the first eight sessions of Zechariah. So all of these I've already asked you once. So it's, a, it's kind of a recap, and let's see if you can get all of them tonight. So don't say the answer out loud. Think of them in your mind. Write it down if you want. And then after I ask all seven, we will go back and we'll look at the answers. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? What does the name Zechariah mean? Number two, what was the name of Zechariah's famous grandfather? Remember, it talks about in chapter 1, they returned from Babylon, and uh, his grandfather was the most famous high priest in that, in that area. Famous, the name of his famous grandfather. Question number three, what are the two themes of the book? Remember, we talked about the book is about two things all the way through. You see the same themes over and over. What are the two themes of the book of Zechariah? All right, question number four. How long had the work of rebuilding been stopped by the time Zechariah began his prophecy? How long had the work been stopped? So they came back from Babylon, started to rebuild the walls of the city, rebuild the walls of the temple, and uh, got discouraged after they laid the foundations, and they stopped working for how many years before Zechariah began his prophecy? Question number five. How many visions did God give Zechariah? That's easy. That's a layup for you there. So how many visions did God give Zechariah? Question number six, how many people returned to the land of Israel from Babylon? Remember, most of the Israelites stayed in Babylon, but a remnant came back. How many came back from Babylon to the land of Israel to rebuild it once again? And then question number seven, what are the names of the two men Mentioned in Zechariah who returned to lead Israel. Names of two men, both of them had visions about them. Now, these are not the two men mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the two men mentioned in Zechariah that came back to lead them. One was a governor or the builder and one was a high priest. What are the names of those two men? 
So, let's look at the answers. What does the name Zechariah mean? Question number one. God remembers. Absolutely. God remembers. They thought he had forgotten them, and he wanted them to know, even just by the prophet's name, he had not forgotten them. Question number two. What was the name of Zechariah's famous grandfather? Ido. Very good. I-D-D-O. It talks about that in chapter one. And he was the famous grandfather of Zechariah who came back. What are the two themes of the book? Don't stop rebuilding. Keep rebuilding those walls of the temple. And number two, your best days are ahead of you. The glory years of Israel are not behind you. They're in front of you. And both of those were, uh, ca- actually came to pl- pass later on. Question number four, how long had the work of rebuilding been stopped by the time Zechariah began his prophecy? Eighteen years. Absolutely. Eighteen years. After 18 years, he prophesied, and once again, they started their work again. No, number five, how many visions did God give Zechariah? Eight. Absolutely. We finished the eighth one last uh, two weeks ago. Question six, how many people returned to the land of Israel from Babylon? 150,000. There you go. 150,000 returned as a remnant back. And then question number seven, what are the names of the two men mentioned in Zechariah who returned to lead Israel? Who was the high priest? Joshua, absolutely. And the builder was Zerubbabel, absolutely. Boy, y'all, we have A students here. Man, oh man, that is so good. How many got all of them? Quite a few. All right, that's good. That's good. So, got all of them. All right, let's look at Zechariah. All the eight visions are now over. Remember, he had them in one night. So, one night, he has all eight visions. He told the visions to the people, and the last of the eight visions are now over. So look at letter A on your outline. We're going to look at the crown and the temple in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Zechariah now comes to and from the eight visions he received in the one night. And the very next thing he does next is really important and really interesting. What follows next is a symbolic act by Zechariah with a lot of significance behind it. Now remember... The names of the two leaders that are back that comes in play in just a moment. The high priest was Joshua. And the builder, or they call him, some call him the governor, but most likely he wasn't the governor. I don't think Darius back in Persia would have put up with those new people electing a governor. So they call him a builder, a civic leader, I guess you might say. Zerubbabel, the civic leader, and, and Joshua, the high priest. One of them would build the walls of the temple, Zerubbabel, and the other one would take care of the sacrifices of the people for the sins, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Now, let's look at verses 9 through, uh, first of all, 9 through 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah speaking, take from the exiles Helday, Tobijah, and Judea, who have arrived from Babylon, And go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. That would be the high priest. Take from them, the, the, the new exiles, silver and gold, and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Let's stop there. What's going on? Just because the 150,000 exiles came back from Babylon to to the land of of Israel, that didn't mean that's the only ones who came back. 
From time to time, you had trickles of exiles from Babylon who said, you know, I think we need to go back to. So you had people, not in mass, but trickles of exiles arriving all the time in the land of Israel. As we pick up with verse 9, there were three significant exiles who had just come from Babylon to, or rather Persia, to, uh, to the land of Israel, and were told their names. Helde, uh, Tobijah, and Judea. Three men who decided, I'm not going to live here in Babylon any longer. I'm, I'm going back to help them rebuild. Now, whenever they would go back, remember Darius, the king of Persia, was very generous in allowing the first 150,000 to come back. And if you remember, when they came back, they didn't have any money when they got there. How are you going to live? How are you going to rebuild the walls? He gave them gifts to get started on, gold and silver and things like that. Very nice of him. As the exiles would trickle in over the course of the years, he would still bring gifts to them. That's a, that's a very generous king, uh, Darius, there in Persia. So three exiles arrived one day, and these three men had gold and silver from Persia, from the land of Babylon, but it was from Persia. So here's what God tells Zechariah to do. I want you to go down to the house where Helde, Tobijah, and Judea just arrived from Babylon. They've got, they're loaded. They've got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, gold and silver. I want you to go down there, and I want you to take the gold and silver from those three men, and I want you to fashion a crown, beautiful crown of a king, to place on Joshua's head, the high priest. Now, do you find anything odd about that? Anything sound off? Israel did not crown high priests as kings. They kept those two offices separate. High priest would never do the job of a king. King would never do the job of high priest. We'll talk in just a moment why God commanded that. But because of that, some theologians have said, well, it says the word crown here, but it's might have been, it might have been the high priest would wear a turban. Remember they'd wear a turban that says holy to the Lord on it? Maybe it was just one of those high priest turbans. It wasn't really an elaborate crown like a king would wear. But the only problem with that is the wording that's used in Hebrew is the word for a crown, not a turban. And there's a different word used. Not only that, the word crown in verse 10 is in the plural. Now, in your English, it says crown singular, but in Hebrew, it's crowns, plural. Because of that, some people thought, well, maybe he's making two crowns. But here's what the Hebrew language does. Still, still does it today. And sometimes, to make a word more powerful, they'll make it into the plural, even though it's singular. So whenever you see crowns plural, it meant that one crown is really, really elaborate. And that appears to be what's happening here. God commanded 
to go down to where these three men had the gold and silver, take all this gold and silver, and make this huge, elaborate crown to set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Make this ornate crown out of the silver and gold. Now, first of all, before we get into the significance of why he did that, do the names of the men mean anything? Most of the time in the Bible, we're not told the names of people. So whenever we are, it's significant, usually. Why didn't the Bible just say, you know, three exiles came from Babylon and, and had gold and silver with them as gifts, and they went and took it? Why are we told the names? Helday, Tobijah, Judea. Usually when the Bible tells you details, it's there for a reason. So most Bible scholars don't know why the three men are mentioned by name. We really have no, no theories. But there's one theory put forth by a few commentators. J. J. Vernon McGee was one of them and others as well. And they see that their names had significance and meaning. As you know, Bible names meant something. The, word, the name Helday means robust. And the name Tobijah means God is good. And the name Judea means God knows. So because of that, some commentators see the meaning of the names significant in the upcoming coronation of Joshua, the high priest, with the crown. God knew through his goodness that he would put his king on the throne and he would do so in a robust manner, maybe. But other than that, we don't know why the three men's name are mentioned. Now, here's what is odd. As I mentioned, high priests were never crowned as kings in the Bible. Kings were never crowned as, as priests. God told them to keep those offices separate. And if they didn't, they'd be punished. King, priest, they'll never meet in the Old Testament. So why would he crown the high priest as a king? You might remember 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah tried it. King Uzziah, he, he was powerful in battle, defeated the Philistines and defeated the Ammonites. And they were paying tribute to him. And he got the big head and thinking, I don't need a priest to offer sacrifices to God. I'll do it myself. And so he went in to offer sacrifices to God as a priest. And the priests were trying to hold him back. A lot of priests trying to hold him up, don't do it, don't do it, you'll incur the wrath of God. It's not that big a deal. He saw himself as powerful, and he went in and offered a sacrifice on the altar, and God struck him immediately with leprosy. And he lived as a leper the rest of his days. Had to live in a house by himself, and his son finished out his kingdom. So God didn't take it lightly when you cross the offices of king and priest. So why on earth... Was he doing this? Well, some people believe that there's an error in the Bible. That it should have said, rather than Joshua would be crowned, it should say Zerubbabel. And they just switched the two men who were the leaders. 
I don't believe that, by the way. The Bible does not have any errors in it. God did this for a reason. Zerubbabel, it would have been fine for him to be crowned as king. He was their leader. He just wasn't the high priest. So there are some commentaries, I read one this afternoon, who said, well, there was an error here, and it meant to say Zerubbabel rather than Joshua. No, no, there are no errors in Scripture. So why would this happen? Think through, was there ever a time in Israel's history where the great high priest would be a king? Anytime? New Testament? Jesus. Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. He was the great high priest from Hebrews telling us that he is the great high priest that once and for all made a sacrifice for our sins and he is king of kings and lord of lords. So in Jesus, the offices of priest and king are married together for the first time. And this is a foreshadowing of what God would do for his people in the sending of a Messiah. Joshua the high priest was crowned because there would be a coming descendant of David, like him, to rule over Israel as Messiah, and he would combine the offices of priest and king. Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? You're reading into it? Nope. Keep reading verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his, from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Verse 14, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder or a memorial to Helem, Tobijah, Judea, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. So, let's go a little further. Look at verses 12 now through 14. Who's the branch? Christ. We saw that earlier, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus is called the branch. The branch was a familiar title in the Old Testament for the Messiah who would be coming. It was, that's mentioned in Isaiah 4, 2, Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5, Jeremiah 33, 15. All four of those passages, the Messiah would be called the branch. So the Messiah coming, the branch was associated with fruitfulness and life. Jesus as Messiah was known as the branch. So it's not reading into the text. It tells you in verse 12 that his name is the branch who will combine the offices of prophet or rather priest and king. John 15, Jesus used the same imagery whenever he said he's the vine, we're the branches, that connection that we have to him. So why this branch imagery for Israel? Very simple. Those of you who've been to Israel know it is a hot and dry place. 
and there is not all, especially you get from the middle of the country all the way down, it is barren, it's hot, it's rocky, it's dusty, and there is hardly anything that grows out there. So it's the imagery that out of nothingness, God promises to bring life. Out of nothingness, God's going to raise up a Messiah, a shoot, just a shoot out of dry ground. Jesus will sprout the branch. God will through Christ. Isaiah 53, 2 talks about it. Micah 5, 2 talks about it. That the, out, of, out of nothingness, God will bring something, Jesus the Messiah. Now, here's something else I find fascinating. Look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, what are the first three words he's supposed to say? Behold the man whose name is the branch. Behold the man. Go to the New Testament, John 18. Jesus is tried before Pilate. Pilate doesn't find anything wrong with him. So he has him beaten, flogged, crown of thorns, placed on his head, purple robe on his back. They strike him with their fists in mock homage. Hail, King of the Jews. And he brings him out to the crowd who's wanting to crucify him. And he's mocked him, and he thinks it's funny to mock the Jews. And so he brings him out. And what does Pilate say as he presents him? Behold the man. The exact same three words in verse 12. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he says, behold the man. The exact title of Christ. Only when Pilate brought him out, it was in humiliation. But when Zechariah mentions it, it's in triumph. Same three words. Behold the man. Something else interesting. Joshua the high priest is the one who has the crown on. What does the name Joshua mean? God saves. What does the name Jesus mean? God saves. Jesus is the New Testament form of the Old Testament word Joshua. Same name. What an imagery here between Joshua being crowned as the king, as a priest, to foreshadow another descendant of David who would combine the offices and bring glory to Israel. Verse 14 tells us it's to be a reminder, memorial. So, in other words, whenever he places this crown on his head, it's going to be a memorial, a reminder that one day that prophet, priest, king is coming. A reminder to Halem, Tobijah, Judea, and Hen. Who's Hen? Probably Joshua the high priest because he also was the son of Zephaniah. Most people believe the word hen was the nickname for Joshua. Now look at verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall build the temple of the, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, a priest sitting on the throne, this isn't the only time in the Old Testament you see that. Psalm 110 
also tells us one day in Israel a priest would come and occupy the throne. So, in verses 15, uh, 14 and 15 there, we're told that the crown would be a reminder, and God made it clear Joshua was the picture of Jesus to come. Verse 15, the crown was something that would happen, not yet, but for a long time to come into the future. But it reminded them God is at work to bring about the coming of the Messiah later on. What did the people need to do now? In verse 15, diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, one day God will make it right. Your job right now is to obey what he told you. So what's our job as believers right now? Obey what he's told us to do. One day he'll make it right. One day he'll, we'll, we'll get to be with him in heaven. One day it's going to be good. Right now, our job as believers diligently obey everything he's told us to do. I hope that you're doing that tonight. Now, Dr. Barron used to say this about the passage I just read. He said, this is the one of the most remarkable and precious Old Testament messianic promises that we have. And there is no plainer prophetic utterance in the entire Old Testament as to the person of the redeemed, of the promised redeemer the offices he will fill, and the mission he will accomplish. As Joshua was placed that crown on his throne, we have a beautiful picture of Christ. Marrying two offices God said always keep separate. God perfectly combined them in his son. Now let's go letter B on your outline for the time that we have left. Let's look at verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 of the next chapter. It's been two years since the placing of the crown. So, in turning from chapter 6 to 7, we go forward two years. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, that's the king back in Persia, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is his love. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Whenever you remember the exact day and year of something, it's significant to you, isn't it? If somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, boy, I remember, I remember it was June 3rd of 1992. You're, you're going to go, well, okay, something significant's coming. Hey, they told me the exact day. I remember March 27th of 1980, the night I almost died. Uh, family was called in. I had a disease and I was dying. Now, I remember that day. So, we're told here, verse 1, it was the fourth day of the ninth month of Kislev. So something significant happened. Let's keep reading verse 2. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regam Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, let me stop for a second. Let me give you background. Otherwise, the, all of chapter 7 doesn't make sense without this background. Let me give it to you. In the Old Testament, God gave laws to his people. And one of the laws was on the Day of Atonement. Moses was commanded to tell the people on the Day of Atonement, the people should, quote, afflict their souls. 
as part of the Day of Atonement. What does that mean? Well, we're not told. How do you afflict your soul? Jews took it to mean fasting. Okay, you afflict your soul by, by refraining from eating or drinking. So they interpreted Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 34, on the Day of Atonement, we are to fast. He never told them to fast. He just said, afflict your souls. They took it to mean fasting. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus reaffirmed fasting. We'll talk about that in a, in a couple of Sundays on Sunday morning when we get to that in the Lord's uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But originally, Day of Atonement, they were told to fast. They were told to afflict their souls. So they took it as fasting. Okay, Day of Atonement, we should fast. Fast forward. They, they go into exile. They no longer have the temple. They're in Babylon as slaves. Temple's in ruins. Jerusalem's in ruins. There's no place to go back to to offer a sacrifice. No place to keep up your faith. So while they're in Babylon, they decided we're going to keep the faith of those things we can. One of the things we can keep is a fast. We can do that here. So they kept the fast on the Day of Atonement. But here's what else they did. They added four more fast to the calendar year themselves. God didn't tell them to. They just thought, we want to, we feel guilt for our sins. We feel sorry for what we did. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to add that because we feel guilty. So they added four more fasts. They added one in the fifth month, which was commemorated the day of the destruction of the temple. And it was a sad day for them. We remember the day the temple was is in ruins, and so we're not going to eat or drink. Then they added a, a second fast on the, in the seventh month, which commemorated the murder of Gedaliah. The, if you remember, he was the last governor of Judah, and then their, their country ceased to be. So it's in mourning of Gedaliah, their last governor. And then they added a fast in the fourth month mourning the capture of Jerusalem, and then they added a fast in the ninth month, the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege that captured the country. So now they fast five times a year. Okay, that's the background. On December 4th, 518 B.C., which is that fourth day of the ninth month of Kislev, that's what it relates to in our calendar is December 4. 518 B.C., there was a delegation that came to Jerusalem to ask a question. The delegation, if you noticed, it says they came from, verse 2, Bethel. Wait a minute. Bethel is only 10 miles from Jerusalem. I thought all the ones from Babylon came back to Jerusalem. What are they doing up in Bethel? What's going on up there? There's a, there's a theory, as, the, as you read the Old Testament, that whenever Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel and captured the land, there was a small pocket of Israelites that escaped to Bethel and stayed. And Nebuchadnezzar missed them. And they continued to live in the land, just a few of them, continued to live in the land and continued to practice the rituals they couldn't they could fast and things like that and that's what these 
people in Bethel are doing. Why would that, why, why, where do you get that from? Well, some people take Amos's prophecy when he prophesied to the people of Bethel and be in that group. Possible. Another option would be that everybody went to Babylon and some of them came back to Bethel and the rest went back to Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, there's a group of Jews living 10 miles out in the country, a little place called Bethel, that they'd set up a place where they could worship God. So the people of Bethel sent a delegation of two men, Sherezer and Regemelech, to Bethel to ask a question about fasting. Question is, we have these five fasts a year. Do we keep doing those? I mean, you've got the temple on its way. It's been two years since the vision, so it's probably at least halfway done or more now. you got the places to offer sacrifices. You can go back to what you were doing. You don't need all these fasts. So do we quit fasting and just go back and worship at the temple and bring sacrifices here? Or do we just keep these five fasts a year? Do we keep doing it? It's a question they had. Now, some people see significance in, in the names of the two men that went. Notice again, we're given names. Sharezer and Regemelech. What do these names mean? Sharezer means God protects the king. There's only one king that's in Babylon. And the second name, Regemelech, means the king's friend. There's only one king that's back in Babylon. So, a lot of Bible scholars believe these two men were actually Jews who were born in Babylon during the captivity. They were there 70 years. They had kids, grandkids. That these two men may, be, may have been born in Babylon and they were friends with the king in the Babylonian courts. Maybe. So, they came and asked the question. Now, they had as I said, kept this practice up of fasting for 70 years. But here's what's interesting. These fasts were not originally commanded by God. But since they'd been practicing them for 70 years, the fasts developed a tradition of their own. You know how in churches we can develop traditions of our own even though God never commanded it? For example style of worship. God never commanded us to have an organ and choir and order of services. That's just something we came up with. Now, we're continuing because we like it. That's how we worship God. We're not changing any styles. But those aren't in Scripture anywhere, are they? Or the time of the worship service. got to be 11 o'clock on Sundays. That's the churching hour. We're never told 11 o'clock on Sundays go to church. You see, we develop a lot of traditions about church that make us feel good about ourselves. And sometimes if you mess with the traditions, people get really angry. And that's what was happening here. The fast became something that was really important to the Jews. And the fast took on a tradition themselves. There are some people that believe that this delegation of two men went to brag. Oh, uh, we have a question. Should we keep all of these five fasts that we do every year? Uh, five? Did we mention we do five of them a year? 
Maybe because the, it says they went to entreat the favor of the Lord. That phrase meant try to gain God's favor. Maybe they're trying to brag about what they're doing. We don't know. But they ask him a question, and I find God's response to be very interesting. Listen to what he says to their question, verse set 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? What he's saying was, think on your fast. Are you doing those traditions for me or for you? Same question we need to ask ourselves. Do you do on Sundays what you do for God or for you? Now, he has commanded us to attend worship. He's commanded us to be with his people. He's commanded us to study his word. But sometimes we have a lot of other traditions that develop around that that are for us. So his question is, are you doing what you're doing for me or for you? Have these fasts taken on a larger life than me? That's an interesting question. He never answers their questions whether they should keep them or stop them. He never answered. He just asked them a question. Who are you doing it for? Because their hearts, here's what's happening. They observed the fast, and they thought they were fine. They thought, as long as we keep these five fasts, God's pleased with us. And the rest of the year, they cheated each other. They were materialistic. They were self-indulgent. They were sinful people. But they thought, as long as I keep those five fasts, I'm good. And people today think, as long as I go to church, I'm good. And they live the rest of the way they want the rest of the week. And so, it's, there's kind of a lot of parallels here. A few days of fasting a year by the Jews did not make up for the rest of the year and the way they lived their lives. So, God asked them a question to consider. Because their hearts were not right with God, these rituals were not accepted by God. Rather than repeatedly grieving over our past... God wanted them to focus on obeying him now. The purpose of the fast, by the way, did you notice when I mentioned all five fasts, what they related to? It related to their past and how sad they were they lost their land and they lost their temple. So all of these 70 years, every time they fasted, it wasn't in obedience to God. Then it was so sad for what they lost. And you know what? That may be a good lesson for us. How long should we remember and mourn over our past? You know, sometimes God wants you to put your past behind you and move forward. Sometimes he wants you to accept the fact he's forgiven you and be obedient now. 
I know some people that feel so bad about their past. Oh, God can never forgive me. And all they focus on is their past, their past. Oh, I'm just, uh, I just, I, I failed the Lord. I failed the Lord. Okay, you failed him. Accept his forgiveness and get over it and move on. And for 70 years, they grieved over their past while they were disobeying him in the present. This is really a pretty good question for us as well. And the last thing we'll say is, this was not the last, the first time they had heard this. Because we're told at the end of verse 7, God said, Didn't the prophets who even before you went into captivity, whenever Jerusalem was prosperous and inhabited, even they told you at that time, don't get caught up in traditions and miss God. Don't get caught up in what you do and miss him. Yes, be obedient to what he's commanded you to do. Absolutely. But don't miss him in the doing of the traditions. That's what he told them. And then he's telling them once again 70 years later. Well, that was, uh, that's it through chapter 7, verse 7. And then he has one more word to say to them about fast, by the way. And we'll pick up with that in verse 8 as we move on. But there's a lot more in there. I didn't want to just kind of put it all in tonight. I wanted more time to talk about some very significant things from 8 and 14 we'll talk about next time. If you have any questions afterwards, feel free to see me, send me emails. I'm always glad to discuss anything from the passages you have questions about. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, thank you today for how you teach us so much from your word. God, one of the things you taught us tonight is that we should always come to you with a, with a heart to do things for the right reasons and to obey you diligently the things you've told us to do. And Father, you also told us tonight that in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And I praise you. Jesus was everything we needed, and I praise you for him. And it's in his name we pray tonight. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.